eBay friends. Welcome to episode 152 of eBay the right way. Today's date is Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2024, and my guest is Julie in Montana, who is back after a year updating us on her ephemera and postcard reselling business. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I am actually with my beloved Midwestern man this week, visiting the homestead in Illinois for Valentine's week and to make final arrangements to move in early March. Some of you have asked where I will be moving to. It is southwestern Illinois, really close to the center of the state. It's farm country, about an hour north of St. Louis, Missouri, and an hour south of Springfield, Illinois. Actually, three-fourths of the state of Illinois is considered well-suited for farming. So I will be there in farm country. Anyway, I'll be documenting my journey on my YouTube channel because I can show photos and videos of everything, which you can't really do on a podcast. Thank you again for your emails and messages. I really appreciate everyone's support. There are great things to come. I'm really excited about this next chapter and building my eBay store bigger and better than ever. Okay, that is my update. Now on to the chat with Julie. Welcome back, listeners. I've got a repeat guest this week, and we've got Julie, the ephemera lady in Montana. Um, how are you doing, Julie? It's been a year. Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm still doing postcards and still in Montana. not a lot has changed (laughs) and you do more than just postcards we're going to talk about some of that too yes I do other ephemera too um and besides doing ebay I also have um antique vendor booths and youtube channel so um, among other things didn't you connect with a seller who was out there in montana too um I did a few emails with her but we hadn't met met up yet okay Um, so but Maybe sometimes she, I know she's busy right now because her mall is moving at the moment. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, just refresh our memory about your location. So I live west of Billings, Montana. So we're about 24 miles from the nearest gas station. Very rural. I live on a ranch. I'm not the rancher. <laughs> so <laughs> I enjoy the the land, but I don't have to do that hard work, especially when it was 30 below zero the other week. So. Oh my gosh, I know that was brutal. Uh, yeah, it's a great place to live, and there's a lot of people who love history out here because we're really close to history, it feels. And so, there's a lot of people who still have their grandparents' collections and stuff. Um, I know that this is probably the same thing in the other areas too, but um, it's like the grandparents of the great grandparents were often the ones who homesteaded out here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now, back to 30 below, do you even go outside when it's that cold? Not as much as I could. <laughs> um, well, I have a um, chicken coop. So, of course, you have to go out and tend to them. We didn't let them out during that time, but you still have to make sure they have food and water. Yeah, and the and water then, freezes. You got to go out and check and make sure it's not frozen. Yeah, we have an electric heater. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, when you live in the colder climates, you have to prepare. Oh, so you have a heater in the chicken coop. Yeah, I have a, a heat panel in there. And also I have a water heater. Okay. So it stand, it's the water sits on the stand that has the heater on it. Okay. That's me always worrying about the animals that are, are yeah. built to live outside. But oh, are they going to be cold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, yeah, they're tougher than they look. <laughs> so they don't lay when it's that cold, do they? They don't actually lay eggs if it's that cold. No, they don't. They, um, yeah, it's just not a good thing for them to, to be doing that. So nat- right. nature just takes its course. Okay. All right. Well, good to know. And also what brought you to eBay and when? 
So I had probably dabbled in eBay a long time ago, maybe 20 so years ago, back when it was um, different. And then I came back when um, in about 2000, when a lot of people were probably looking for what can we do from home. And I stumbled across ephemera and I've always liked um, paper things. And it just seemed a good fit because I like history. I like to learn things. I don't mind dealing with little pieces of paper. Some people, it drives them crazy. But, um, and it just, it was a good fit. Um, the reason why I think some people, un, some people underestimate the work that you put into ephemera. Because in a, like if you have a shoebox of postcards, there could be five, 600 pieces of inventory in there. And people think, well, I'll just go th through that in an hour. But it actually will take you weeks, maybe months to go through that little box. So I think they get a little overwhelmed by this little box um, and learning about all of the process of, of what's worth and how do I sell it. Yeah, I've got some of that going on. My sister has some of her um, husband's family stuff. Um, he passed away right around Thanksgiving and gave me that box of stuff the week after Christmas and I have it sorted out. I know what I'm going to do. I just haven't sat down to do the research and figure out how to price it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, even though it's just a box, you know, 12 by 12 box, um, it's still kind of intimidating when you're new to it. Mm -hmm. It is. And yeah. a lot of people I see say, can you tell, they'll show you pictures and say, can you tell me what this is worth? <laughs> And it's, it's, um, well, it depends because it is really, you have to put in the work to it and learn about it. And it, it seems like it should be simpler than it is. But um, the more I learn about postcard and ephemera, the more there of depth that I encounter of, of things. So there, there's just layers and layers because ephemera has been with us for thousands of years, you know, so there's just so much to it and so many different kinds. So one question that was posted was, um, where do you get it? Because it really isn't something you see like in a thrift store. I've seen any in a thrift store. Um, right. You have yeah. Yeah. You rarely yeah. see them in thrift stores. I never have seen them in like Goodwill or anything because I think that they have different processes in those places. Like they'll put it online or sometimes with photographs, people won't put them in a thrift store because they think it's too personal and they'll just throw them or something. So where I find them, when I first started, I purchased a lot of them on eBay. I bought, bought large lots. And that was a good learning experience because I needed to go through all those and learn them, learn what they are and their values. And then as I go, actually, uh, almost a year ago after our interview, I changed my my um game on uh, how I, I did my postcard selling. So um, so now I am sourcing mostly from uh, like um, uh, antique stores, um, postcards uh, events, which are a bunch of postcard people who may not know what they sell online, but they know what it sells in person, which is kind of can be two different things. Um, and just uh, local people, I've bought a couple times off of Craigslist, a couple collections. So I'm more specializing in, into um, into more of what I want to sell because I think that in the beginning I needed to do the work to learn, you know, go through thousands of postcards and find the values and go through them to find out what I like to sell best. Okay, and how many do you have in your store right now? Okay, so I have about the same amount as I did last time. I, I watched the interview from our last year, so I wouldn't repeat too much. But um, 8,500 is about <laughs> what I have. And I was my goal was to have 20,000. But when I had changed my philosophy of how I wanted to sell the postcards, I decided to go with, um, to not do as many of the common postcards anymore and go with the more, the different ones. Um, partly because I get bored after a while of listing the same ones over and over. And partly because it's more lucrative to sell a little higher price postcard. I mean, when I say higher price, I'm saying $10 or more. There is the majority of postcards, like about, I would say around 80% that you get in a collection are gonna be worth $5 or less. So um, I'm not really listing those as, as much anymore online unless I really want them in my shop 
And then the rest of them, I either lot up or I put them in my um, vendor booth, my vintage vendor booth. Okay. Now, somebody did ask about storage. Do you have each one stored in a protective sleeve? Or do yes, you just I, use that? Oh, you do. You store it that way. Yeah, I do. And I've seen postcard dealers do it a couple of ways. But I want the postcard to be in the same condition that I listed it as. Because if you don't put it in a sleeve and you're um, constantly um, touching the tops of them or paging through them to look through, you know, look for that one piece of inventory to pull, then they can get a little torn or a little more ragged over the years. And postcards and ephemera are long tail. So you could have a postcard for five, 10 years and then they sell. <laughs> so it's, okay. it's more, you have to have a high quantity to sell you know, consistently. But if, if something's going to sit in, in my inventory for five years, I can't guarantee it's going to be in the same condition if it's not protected. So that's that's okay, what I and think. Where do you where do you get those protector sleeves? There's uh, there's a few companies online that sell them. And some people I, I did start by buying them from other dealers off of eBay because you can get them for fairly cheap. They call them penny sleeves. They're not a penny anymore, but they're they're a few pennies each. And um, the run I've been buying from there's a there's a couple shops on eBay that sell them pretty um, uh, cheaply. And then when you need to buy um, get to more that you need bulk, then you can go to buy you know larger lots from uh, the actual manufacturer. So Ziploc yeah. bags are a no. Ziploc bags. Um, you could do Ziploc bags. It would be I think it would be more expensive. Okay. Yeah. But the, the postcard sleeves are basically what postcard people are used to because they fit the postcard pretty much. Um, and they, they have an open end in them as well. Okay. Okay. Um, have you had any big sales in the last year that you want to share? Um, not huge sales. I mean, sometimes I get a hundred dollar postcard here or there. Um, mostly my postcards, you know, they go for between 10 and $50. And it may not seem like a lot, but when you deal with something that um, you can, you have basically 8,500 of them and uh, they're, I don't take pictures of them. I scan them. So they are really fast to list. So mm -hmm. I'm scanning them. I can scan a stack of hundred postcards within a few minutes. So I have front and back images right then. And then if I have them sorted correctly, I just, um, I, when I go to list on eBay, all of the filled in um, items are there and all I have to do is change a title, change the picture, you know, and the next. So that it's really, really quick to list them once you get the, the method down. So the, for the amount of time that it takes to list them um, and you get them for, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents each, um, there's a really good profit margin in there for your yeah, time. Absolutely. Especially if you build your store, like you've got over 8,000 listings. Mm -hmm. so about how many do you sell a day well that depends <laughs> it could be um I actually kind of took uh like a little bit of hibernation off this winter <laughs> where I was just you know just get, kind of get a little burned out on things so my sales of course haven't been as well but before that I was consistently doing about a hundred dollars a um, before I did all the, the changes and stuff. And so now I'm working back up to that now. Now, of course, I'm doing it in January and February when sales are a little different. So um, I expect to be back up to that in a, a month or so. Okay. But, and that, that could be either five postcards. It could be three postcards. It could be 10 postcards a day. So um, it's just, it's fairly easy to package them up too. And they fit in your mailbox. Going right. Out. Are you still using that uh, eBay envelope? Yep, the eBay standard envelope, which is a um, another great thing about this is because you get a little break on the shipping cost, especially since postage keeps going up and it has mm -hmm. tracking on it. The tracking on it, though, is not like the tracking that you'd expect, you know, that the post postal people, they scan when they deliver. It actually is, I think it's a second party scanning or a it tracks from post office to post office. So sometimes somebody will message me and say it, the the scan says it was delivered, but it wasn't, which means it it was at the last post office before they were delivering. So sometimes there's a little confusion 
to the buyer about that. But once you explain it, and then it, then it usually arrives in the next couple of days for them. But that's just something to keep in mind with the eBay standard envelope. Um, I mean, you can also use it for coins and I believe trading cards as well, like baseball cards and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was glad to see they came out with that. Um, yeah. For all these small things that like you're not going to spend four dollars to ship a postcard that you only sold for 10. Right. And your well, buyers aren't going to pay that. No. And it used to be that you would just put a stamp on the envelope for most of the postcard sellers did that because, um, you know, postcard people are, are a little different. <laughs> they're, they're usually pretty, pretty honest. And they, they don't usually try to say, I didn't buy it when they, they did. I didn't receive it when they did receive it. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen as much, I think in the postcard world. Okay. So we have some of the logistics there. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to go over what type of subject or content on a postcard sells for the most? What's yeah, that's actually one of the most um, common questions I get is how what's valuable in a postcard. Um, if you look um, historically, the, the top selling postcards have been sports themed or like something like Titanic. Um, those like can go to the thousands of dollars, but those are very rare to find. So for the ones that you're probably going to come across, one of the first things I look for is Halloween postcards. They are not as common and people love them. And I've had a few. I'm actually bought a lot at an estate sale locally. And there was one, I think I bought like paid $7 for the lot. And there was one Halloween postcard in there that sold for $80 out of there. And sometimes they go for a couple hundred. It depends on, on the postcard. But that is um, something that um, is you can sell all day long if you can find them. Another one um, is uh, people like pictures of hospitals, especially in insane asylums. Um, <laughs> really? <yeah. laughs> oh my gosh! I know now that's got to be a historical thing, <laughs> right? So they do like old city views, um, although there's a lot of city views, so you have to find the right city views. Um, a lot, there's a type of postcard called a real photo postcard an RPPC for short. And they, um, I think I'd mentioned it in the last, um, podcast, but there's, it's still, I think if you were going to specialize in one type of postcard, that would be the type that could be the most profitable. You're not going to get all of the valuable postcards, but you're going to get a lot of the valuable postcards because it's so often rare views of real things. So the people do like to collect those. Um, there's uh, a lot of, um, let's see here, advertisements will be um, good for things that are not there anymore. Or like the like one of my $100 postcards was of a beer company. and But it was only, the, a lot of times that beer company will sell really well, but then there's a certain era that they dropped off in price. So you have to, to know kind of that as well. Um, here there's sometimes the back of the postcard might be valuable as more than the front it depends on the content on there i um sometimes you have to do a little research um I, I, sometimes the message will be good or if it's a soldier mail um sometimes a famous signature or uh, i know there was some of them that were talking about like the flu like the that the, the original flu epidemic that went through right about people yeah. right yeah and um sometimes the what is the post office marks cancellation stamps um of places that are ghost towns now are no longer there can be valuable there's a lot of historians who are looking for certain places um let's see here i'm, I'm probably going to come up with a lot more once we're not not on the podcast. That's how it but, usually works. I know. <laughs> no, like, going back to the postmark, are there any highly coveted postmarks like, you know, that are kind of rare? I don't know. Maybe the town doesn't exist anymore or, you know, the Bethlehem ones for Christmas. And, you know, there's like a Bethlehem, Georgia. People would drive down there and mail their Christmas cards. So it would say Bethlehem on it. Um, anything along those lines? Well, there are some different kind of post offices, such as um, there was something called um, there's, there's sled dog postmarks. 
cancellations because they would actually send them on a sled dog. And I think okay, still kind of do that. There's tin can mail, which was um, things were sent from I forgot the place, but they were they were um, sent through a tin can across the water. And so there's a postmark for that. So there's some rare ones out there that um, if you you see this, what I mean by the more you do research, the more you find out things. And, And I just Usually when I look on the back, if they have a postmark that doesn't, I, I haven't heard of before, I'll often search the town. It's so easy to do a, a, like a Google search and they'll bring up the town and the population. And if it's, if it's a town that it says the population is less than you know, a couple hundred, I'm like, oh, this could be good. So I think that's part of doing the research. So not only do you have the back of the front of the postcard with the image to think, get the value from, but you also have the back the message, the post, the cancellation, um, possibly the stamp, though it's very rare to have a valuable stamp on a postcard because most of them were sent um, with just a penny stamp, which are very common. So let's see here. Um, So I think that um, when you go through and learning the value, one of the things is that um, I mentioned in the beginning, I had bought lots of postcards on eBay to start listing and learning from. And I think I had to go through that process to learn. And I think that's where a lot of the people that are new to ephemera um, kind of hold back on because it is. it t- took me a couple months to do a lot of the learning and the reading about it. And I you know, watch videos and educate. So it's a whole education curve. For these little pieces of paper and the and um so that's why it, it looks really simple but um it's complicated so um i think that with going through those thousands and thousands and thousands of postcards in the beginning um it helped me to help to educate me um in real time and, and experience that i had to go through that process to know what i wanted to specialize in um, and what i like to do there are postcard sellers who like to specialize in the $5 postcards because they're easy to get. And, you know, it's consistent, probably quick sales, more quick than what I would get. There are people who like to specialize in the higher end postcards, like the $100 ones and the uh, real photo postcards, although they're going to be selling less and uh, maybe not as often. So, and there's people in between. So what I'm going for is the $10 and above, which takes me out of the common postcards but I also uh, focus in on a certain area because um, like Montana and the Western states, the old West, because that's where I am. And I, I recognize the name of the places and such. So I know there's another postcard reseller that specializes in Southern states because they know those. So then um, you just need to find your niche within, within each thing. Okay. Um, so you do ephemera as well. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the items? I've been seeing a lot of cookbooks, like for very little towns or churches or something, you know, back way back in the day. Um, they have handwritten notes in them and uh, just very obscure things. So I'm sure that carries over to all kinds of ephemera. Mm-hmm. It does. So either easy one to add on are photos because they're kind of the same size. They can fit in the same inventory boxes as, as postcards. They're easy to scan. You, again, you don't have to take pictures of pictures. You can put it through your scanner if you have one. And um, then a lot of the things that apply to postcards for values apply to photos. Um, there's also uh, slides, like those old photo slides. And people do like to collect them. It's just certain things, again, a lot of the things are the same for the values, although you want to um, the red Kodak Kodachromes, I think, are more valuable than some of the other ones because of the quality of them. There are stereo view cards, which if you <laughs> the old um, view, kind of the previous view master thing. Right. Usually- it's like a binocular type thing and you just use them to look at pictures. Right. Yeah. And you put it on there and, and you, you have these little Google things, googly eyes things. Yeah. They um, were a early 1900s things as, thing as well. Another thing that I sell sometimes are menus, um, old menus, and sometimes like flight 
menus or okay. um, overseas. I just sold um, a Air Force uh, Korean um, base menu for Christmas. And it, you know, so people, you never know what people are going to want to buy. Um, there's letters, old letters. And uh, I had a lot of love letters that were between these two people who basically he was cheating on a spouse. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So somebody bought that. So, um, and I have a whole bunch of letters from, um, I bought a lot and it has like three or four different soldiers in the family. And so I sorted them out by the soldiers and going to set, sell them in the lots of their soldiers. Um, so there's tickets you can sell um, and passes different things like Knott's Berry Farm is very collectible some Disney is very collectible I don't know a lot about Disney I know you have another Disney collector could probably speak to that but there are some Disney postcards that go for hundreds or thousands of dollars too Mm -hmm. and they're not actually that old so sometimes receipts or ticket um yeah anything that's like paper or something that was meant to be thrown away you, you might be surprised at the value that they have. Cookbooks, um, I usually what I do with cookbooks is I put them in my booth because I try to keep my um, eBay inventory to down to a couple bookshelves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, then, and I don't like to take a lot of pictures. So Because for the amount of time that I could have listed a cookbook to take the pictures and list and edit the pictures, I probably could have listed 10, 20 postcards that would sell for about the same price. So I prioritize my time that way. Like the recipe boxes that have the cards in them. I've seen people selling those. Yeah, you can sell those. I had a box that I bought at an estate sale, probably for like $2.250, I think it was on half price. And it was one of those that you had the, the people that way back in the day had to write in and for, uh, for their free recipe box. And then I actually had a picture of the ad that you would get it from. Um, and that sold for probably, I think, 20 or $30. I mean, it wasn't a huge sale, but uh, it's a good profit margin. And um, I think that they're yeah, coming across old recipe boxes with somebody's handwritten. Sometimes things are written on the back of checks and, um, you know, on somebody's receipt. It's kind of a really interesting journey through somebody's cooking <laughs> uh, year. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, I don't know if you saw on one of my videos recently, there was somebody who sold a ledger from a store mm-hmm. and it was 1880 something. It was a 10 year period. And it's just, I mean, that thing was just almost destroyed looking. The outside looked terrible, but inside the pages, there's where they've written all of, you know, the sale and the person's name and what they bought and the amount like back in the day. And that sold for a hundred dollars. And it was, mm-hmm. it was less than a hundred pages. Yeah. I've seen that. It depends on the, the subject matter of the, where the place is and such, but yeah, those can go for well. Another thing that can go for a good value are old diaries. Um, I've seen p- people put them up for auctions and they go, go for hundreds. They're not as easy to find because usually the family will destroy them or keep them. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) they don't want to be incriminated. (laughs) Right. Or they don't want their family secrets out. But right. um, Yeah. So Yeah. That's um, something that I I search for, but I don't find as often. Um, One thing I came across recently was photos from 70s and 80s. And, you know, like somebody's photo album of their family events and Christmas and just the hairstyles and the clothing and the cars in the background. And so it, photos don't have to be 80, 100 years old for people to want to collect them because, I mean, it was, it was totally 70s. I'm telling you, just the, the you know, bell-bottom pants and the weird hairdos and, um, I was surprised to see how much some of that sold for. Now, yeah. everybody listening is going to be running to their attic or their basement to pull out their photo albums. Yeah, well, mid-century is in, and so is the 80s. And, um, like, I'm Gen X, and to me, it, it was only, like, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> but it really has been longer. 
so now that what I grew up with is vintage, I think. Right. And so the people are looking back at the fashions and what life used to look like. And you know, especially people love pictures of Christmas any you know, over the years and the fashions. Um just I sometimes I would put keywords like mid-century um decor or you know art deco, art nouveau, or whatever the the the, the feel of the photo is or the item. And there's always a collector for something like that. Uh, now there's whether they're highly valuable or not it depends on the subject matter. There's probably a lot of mid-century. There's tons of people in weddings, <laughs> and there's tons of of people just standing there with their portraits. For I think they had was a tradition when you're 18 you get portrait taken, and so. But there are some really interesting ones though that come out of. Uh, those photos. Um, sometimes you'll have somebody who looks like a flapper, which is, you know, something that sells well too. Uh, another thing that a subject matter that sells really well is transportation. Uh, anytime you have like trains, planes, automobiles, people like to collect those as well. So if you have old um, things like that, like an old car, especially if they have their license plate on them, because people will go back there and they can research that license plate and find out who those people were. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. New license plates could be a good seller depending on the year and the state and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think is the oldest item you've ever sold? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I know I've sold some postcards that were from the late 1800s, um, but, which is really early in the postcard world. I don't think I've had I think I've actually had some older photos like they have the old finishing like I think there's like tin types and the um, glass plate negatives and stuff like that so I have sold a few of those um, I don't know a lot about those because I, I get them mixed up on <laughs> which is which so I always have to do a lot of research so I'm not label them the label, label them incorrectly it's so much easier to sell um a uh, 20th century or uh, postcard because um, not possible picture because it's either black and white or color you can kind of see see what they are but the other ones that are um, like set into frames and such you may not know if that's metal behind there or if it's glass or something so there's it's that's another um, whole education uh, for the old old photos well and I think photography came along it was in Queen Victoria's time, 1880s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she was, she really embraced technology and was very interested in, and Albert too, interested in all this new technology. And um, I watched that program, Victoria, that was on PBS. I think it came out in like 2017. I've watched it probably four times all the way through, but just how they, were very interested in modern times and that was unusual for royalty to care anything about that. Um, they just kind of stayed in their own world. So I remember they had some portraits taken and mm -hmm. it was just a new technology that people were fascinated with. Like, oh, you know, you can be on this piece of paper and, and it's you and it's forever. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so find postcards or photographs from that era would be, you know, that was when it started. Those would be valuable. Yeah, they would. Um, they were a certain kind of camera that you could have back then that would take um, real photo postcards and then you can develop. So it was a special camera or you could take a photo and have a different process made from it. But that was pr pretty much um was revolutionary, especially out here in the West, where you probably didn't have as many photographic studios. Although when you speak, speak of the English, there was actually a, a woman named Evelyn Cameron who came to Montana around that era, or late 1800s, around the homesteading era, who was from England. She was nobility, and she was a photographer. So oh. yeah, I would love to find some of her photos or something like that, or a real photo postcard that she did way back when, because I'm right in the area where, or near where, nearish, where she did her work, and she's very popular out here. I don't know about the rest of the world. Um, 
So that, you know, that's why specializing in an area can really be helpful because you know what you're looking for. And because I'm in the area that I like to specialize, I may come across some of those famous artists or personalities or something. Do you know the story of George Eastman who started Kodak? Somewhat. Yeah, just, well, he was in real estate and trying to take photos of his properties. And it was the developing of the photos that hung him up. It took so long and had all these chemicals. And so he decided to figure out a better way. Mm-hmm. Then he did. And then he decided that all people should be able to do this, to take photos. And um, I just think it's fascinating how these people who invented these technologies, they weren't really just sitting around thinking, I need to invent something. You know, they had a problem to solve. Um, and that's where like people today, I need to invent something to sell. I need to invent something for the internet. It's like, it's not really how it works. You need to be in a situation <laughs> where you need a solution, you need a better way, and then you figure it out. So um, there's a documentary about him. It's on YouTube. It's three parts. So if anyone wants to look that up, just um, how he got involved in it, how it progressed and how many times he failed and had to do it over again. And it's a great mm-hmm. story. <laughs> Sounds interesting. I would like to yeah. probably would like that. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have anything else on your list to go over? I think we've covered a lot of it. Um, I also was recently reading a book about one of the um, postcard photographers or artists, um, Samuel Schmucker. So you can even dial down into different artists and publishers and uh, about how he worked for this company that was, I, I didn't realize this, but after the Civil War, Americans really wanted to show that they had art too. Not only because they were, were separated now from Europe, that they wanted to show off. And so they had to develop their own uh, publishing companies in the U.S. because most of the other ones came from Germany. And so I thought there was an interesting line there that said um, at this one photographer said that at the finally at the age of 55, he finally got a good job and a good um, a, a comfortable income. So all his life he'd been working towards this. And I thought that, you know, for like, I'm turning 50 this year. So, and it feels like with reselling and learning so much and stuff that it's kind of comforting to know that here's somebody who's famous now, you know, in the the publishing, those old publishing worlds, um, who really started his career at 55. And so that makes me think you can start, I mean, don't be too intimidated by starting a new a niche or niche, however you pronounce it. And whether it's postcards, it's um, clothes or whatever, but you can start it at any age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and and two people that come to mind, because I just study entrepreneurs all the time, is um, Colonel Sanders, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken, Harlan Sanders. He wasn't in the military. He wasn't a colonel. He made that up. Um, but he didn't start all that until he was 65. Because mm-hmm. he was selling chicken out of a gas station. And just it evolved from there. And also, um, Laura Ingalls Wilder didn't start writing until she was in her 60s. Mm-hmm. And she just was writing her stories. And, you know, that took off like crazy. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're ever too old to learn something new or start a new venture. Um, you know, the sky's the limit. It's all about mm-hmm. your ambition and your creativity. and um, you know, dedication to doing it. So many people have great ideas, but they don't take any action. And then somebody else comes along with the same idea and that person takes action. So they're the one that's known for it or they're successful. And so, yeah, you gotta, you gotta take action. That's the key to any of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've been doing this for nearly three years now and I've learned a lot, uh, enough to help others, but there's still a lot to learn. But if three years ago, I said, no, I don't feel like learning anything new. You know, I don't know what I'd be doing now. So exactly. Yeah. And so you have a YouTube channel. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. My YouTube channel is basically about, um, postcard, well, reselling ephemera. And then I also, um, talk about the vintage boost that I have as well. 
Um, I do have usually a monthly what's sold, um, kind of highlighting a certain area of things. And then about how I'm doing right now, <laughs> I've been in the process of decluttering my space and kind of refocusing a little bit on what I want to do most. I've been, you know, you know, after every once in a while, you have to refocus what you're doing. Because, um, you know, like we've mentioned before, we have too many ideas, <laughs> too many things mm-hmm. we want to do. And so then I have to reassess. Do I, I, I don't know if I want to have as much inventory for my online booth. I think I'm moving more towards like YouTube. And you know, like I know we mentioned maybe a podcast. I haven't pulled the trigger on that yet. Um, but I like the thought. Um, it, it's a good companion to reselling because it's also something you can easily do from your home. Uh, and on your own time, and then you have a couple streams of income. So I think you 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 do that too very well. <laughs> well, <laughs> and part of that is um, if I just did eBay all the time, I think I'd be really bored. Um, mm-hmm. Just you know, sourcing, taking pictures, listing, shipping. I love it, but you have to find that balance. Yeah, and yep. Um, so like the podcast, I I love meeting other sellers and talking to them about their businesses. And my listeners love that too. Um, so, you know, that's a different technology to put together a podcast. And then um, YouTube is more visual. You can do things on YouTube that you can't do on a podcast because nobody can see anything on a podcast. It's just, mm-hmm. just listening. Um, but I think I have this innate drive to document things. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I need to tell people this, you know, this could help a lot of people if I tell them this. And you have that too for your mm-hmm. YouTube. Um, yep, the teaching. Because yes. it's just, you have to be driven to, you know, teach, educate, share information, research information. Um, it's not everybody mm-hmm. So I commend you for, you know, having that YouTube channel and, and sticking with it. Yeah, sometimes yeah, it's not sometimes easy. It's not easy. But yeah, it I do overall it's um it's a good outlet and like you I like to to teach and to share what I know and it's it's a great way to um to reach out to other people and to to meet people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2020, YouTube exploded. Mm-hmm. Just everybody's at home, what can I do? And some people like, well, I could teach people how to do this, you know, cooking or sewing or whatever. And so it is harder now to get views because there's so many more channels, so much more information and you're competing for people's time. Yeah. You know, we only have so much in a day. And um, I know I've got all kinds of in my watch later on YouTube. (laughs) I'm interested in that, that, that. And, I have all kinds of things in my queue that I never get to. And it's mm-hmm. not that I'm not interested. It's just time. Yeah. For those yeah. out there starting a YouTube channel, be patient because mm-hmm. it's not like it was before where it just explodes. And all of a sudden you, you know, you have a million views on stuff. That's rare these days. It's just too many people on there. There are. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of people on, um, but I think more and more, you, you, YouTube is one of my favorite social medias. Um, you have less of the drama. <laughs> yes. But, and I think you can learn some, there's so many different types of channels. Um, our channels are more of an educational channel um, or not, you know, more of a knowledge base as opposed to like a blog or something. Um, so that it's, and Interesting enough, there's actually a lot of Gen Xers on YouTube. So mm-hmm. um, out there, because I think we're the people who kind of bridge that between the boomers and the, the millennials um, of non-technology to full technology. So I think we see a lot of the things uh, between them and can kind of bridge that gap. I know. I can't imagine being a teenager back in the 80s and having a cell phone and all. I would just be. So distracted all the you know um, yeah. we didn't have all this. yeah I'm really glad some of my stupidest moments were not recorded on video <laughs> I know <laughs> it's 
bad enough being in the yearbook, a bad picture of you. Now, right. <laughs> now you've hair. got, yeah, taking videos and, oh gosh, yeah, the 80s hair was, got really bad, didn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that there was stuff a lot is in that, style now. Just, <laughs> I know, it's, they say these trends repeat themselves every 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, um, that was ugly back then and it's going to be ugly now. So why are we repeating this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Well, then you just source that kind of stuff and make a profit while you can. <laughs> oh, I know. It's- I know. Yeah, absolutely. You just got to pay attention. That's what it's about. So, mm-hmm. okay. Um, we're getting to the end here. Do you have any final words or maybe advice, encouragement for people that are wanting to get into postcards and ephemera? Well, the biggest advice is to be patient, just like a YouTube channel. It's long tail selling. I didn't see consistent sales until I reached about 3,000 listings. And I think some people don't reach that until about 4,000. That's consistent, I mean, at least once a day. So you're not going to be making your money back within a month. You're going to, it's going to be months, maybe a year, and it's not going to be a lot in the beginning. So it's more of a, of a slow thing. But when I took my sabbatical, a little bit of not doing as much listing, I was still consistently selling, you know, stuff, you know, because I have such a vast inventory, I still kept selling stuff without having to do a lot of work. So it's, it can be passive once you get going more Mm -hmm. passive. So it's one of those things that you have to expect to, to not make a profit right away or to make you know, wild amounts of money, unless you come across, um, you know, that rare postcard of the Titanic or something. Yeah, you can't be in a hurry. You just have to know this is going to take some time. And that whole instant gratification of society, you know, we're used to driving up to the drive-thru window and getting your food instantly and, you know, just instant, instant everywhere. And it's not like that with eBay. Or um, especially the category of ephemera postcards, it's you, you got to wait for that person who wants that specific thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming back on again and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with everybody. Again, what is your YouTube channel called? Julie Norman. <laughs> it's pretty okay. easy to find. <laughs> and I'll put a link to that under the podcast too. So if Anybody's interested, I mean, that's how I found you was on you. I to go look at it and see, well, what are they doing? What are they all about? You know, and that's how you end up going down the rabbit hole. Yep. Your <laughs> watch like, list gets longer oh, and longer. Okay. You know, whatever. And you get all involved in it. Too. <laughs> and then they go into my watch list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And um, I can people contact you with questions? Would you rather that be done through your YouTube channel? You can you can comment on the channel. I'm really not very good at getting back to people on email. So I also have a Facebook group um, too that I'm starting to to get um, just for like the ephemera sellers. Um, but also that you know I think you have a thread in your group that for questions and just tag me and I'll come back and I'll answer. I think I've answered a few people's questions. On yes, it. you have. Thank you very much for that. Um, and if you want to. And the link to your Facebook group, I can also put that under the podcast. Okay. Thank you. I'll do that. Okay, great. Well, thanks again. And I hope you uh, stay warm out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. Today's trivia question. Julie mentioned tin can mail. How did tin can mail originate? Here are a few seconds to think about it. In the years between the two world wars, few cruise ships touring the Pacific could hardly dare to leave the tiny island of, I don't even know how to say this, so I'm going to spell it, N-I-U-A-F-O apostrophe O-U, Niuafo-O, maybe, off of their itinerary. 
Why have I never heard of it, you may ask, and what made the ships stop going there? Good questions, and the strange answer is that the islanders built an airport. The story begins back in 1882 when William Travers, a plantation manager, found himself marooned on this tiny donut-shaped island halfway between Fiji and Samoa. It is nothing more than the tip of a volcano jutting out of the vast blue waters of the Pacific. Just a couple of miles out, he could see the passenger liner streaming past, but none ever called because the island had no harbor and no beaches. In fact, the steep sides plunge six miles down to the bottom of the Tongan Trench, making it impossible to anchor and hard to land even a rowboat. The only white man on the island, Travers resented being unable to communicate with the outside world. So when the need to contact his company in Australia became desperate, he came up with an ingenious plan. He wrote to the Tongan postal authorities, asking them to seal his mail in a ship's biscuit tin and arrange for the captain of one of the Union Steamship Company vessels to throw it overboard as they passed the island on their way between Suva and Fiji. These ships traded regularly between the islands of the Pacific. If the captain would give a hoot on the ship's siren, he would send a swimmer out to collect the tin. Carefully, he wrapped his letter in greaseproof paper and tied it to a short stick. He approached the strongest swimmer on the island and asked him to swim out to the next ship and hand his letter to the captain. In this way, tin can mail was born. It was to become a regular happening after Arthur Tyndall set up as a trader on the island some years later. So, as Julie mentioned, there is a postmark that says tin can mail, and anything with this postmark is collectible. Who knew? I learn so much from my guests, so thank you for your wisdom, Julie. Okay, next week's guest is Jess in Canada, and wow, does she have it going on. She and her husband are full-time resellers with a warehouse and 7,000 items in inventory. This did not happen overnight. It has taken them years to build their business to this level, and their journey has been fascinating. Thank you, listeners, for spending the last hour with us, and I hope you have a profitable and productive week. Bye for now.